All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see a lot of new faces here. Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that Earl McDonald said that uh, this week there would be an announcement about small groups that would be spectacular. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's quite spectacular, okay, but uh, I wanted to say that we are planning on launching small groups, uh, including a few new ones, uh, not this week, but next week. And so next Sunday, we're going to hopefully do a little bit of a small group fair while there will be opportunities to talk to the leaders, uh, sign up for groups, and hear from all the leaders exactly what their groups are going to be doing. So if you are interested in connecting in a smaller group setting than what goes on here at Sunday mornings, um, having fellowship, Bible study, uh, that sort of thing with a smaller group of people, there's going to be some great opportunities coming up. Uh, Sarah and I are planning on hosting a college group at our home. Uh, Chuck Redfern's going to be leading a study on healing prayer, going through a book by John Wimber. So lots of good stuff uh, coming up. So if you're interested in that, please uh, be here next week to hear more about that. So, but uh, this week, as Keith already announced, we are still in our Conversations with Jesus series. This is actually our seventh week, believe it or not, in this series. And uh, this week, we've got a really fascinating and challenging conversation to look at. It's different from all of the conversations that we've looked at so far, because this one isn't actually with a human being. In fact, when I was planning for this series, I was only thinking about conversations with human beings, so it didn't occur to me until this week that this is a great conversation to do. I opened up the Gospels and started flipping through them to see maybe there's a conversation that I missed, and I flipped one page, literally one page in the Gospel of Matthew, and there it was. I was like, oh, how did I miss this every other time? Because this is an incredible conversation, and there's a lot to learn from it. And like every conversation that occurs with the devil, it consists of one thing, temptation, right? The devil does the best he can do to entice Jesus to do the wrong thing. And the Bible teaches us that this has really been the devil's program since the beginning of humanity, uh, to entice human beings to do the wrong thing. In the book of Genesis, we're told that the first pair of humans, uh, Adam and Eve, were given authority and freedom in God's creation to enjoy this beautiful creation that God had made. But they were given just one restriction, which was don't eat from that one tree over there. You can eat from all the other trees, but just, just don't eat from that one tree over there. But then the devil came along in the form of a serpent and uh, tempted Eve to do the very thing that she wasn't supposed to do. And the first humans succumbed to that temptation. Now, in the story we're about to look at, Jesus, just like Eve, is going to be tempted by the devil. And what's very interesting is that the way the devil tries to tempt Jesus is a lot like the way he tempted Eve. Uh, most of you probably know the story of Eve's temptation. Uh, but for anyone who doesn't know, the gist of it is this. The devil mocks God's command. He says, oh, did God really say not to eat from that tree? Did he really say that? What's the problem with him? So first thing, uh, the devil mocks God's command. Then he assures Eve that even if she disobeys, she won't die. Even though God said that if she disobeyed, she would die. He says, you will not surely die. And then he appeals to her desire for power. He says, 
God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will be like him. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to be that powerful. So the devil appeals to her desire for power. And when the devil comes to mock Jesus in this passage that we're about to look at, it's very similar, very similar progression of temptation. Uh, He mocks God's command, and we're going to see why in a moment when we read the passage, but he mocks God's command. Uh, he, He tells Jesus to do something that would ordinarily lead to death. And he appeals to Jesus' desire for power. But, unlike Eve, Jesus, of course, doesn't succumb to these temptations. Unlike Eve and unlike every other human being that has ever lived since Adam and Eve, Jesus stands strong when these temptations come. And that shows us that Jesus is what human beings are supposed to look like, but we've completely failed to look like. And because Jesus succeeds where all human beings fail, he has power to rescue us. Power to rescue us from sin and death and the devil. So, when we read this conversation, okay, this is what I want us all to be realizing as we're reading it. We are watching Jesus succeed where all human beings have failed since the beginning. We are watching Jesus succeed where all human beings have failed since the beginning. This conversation is Jesus getting right what we have been getting wrong for a very, very long time. So, let's look at Jesus doing this, okay? If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, as I said, in this conversation, Jesus gets right what we human beings have been getting wrong for a very long time. And because we've been getting it wrong for so long, it's hard for us to even understand what's so bad about the devil's temptations here. Did you notice that? Right? The devil doesn't tempt Jesus with the things that we tend to easily recognize as bad temptations, right? He doesn't try to get Jesus to murder or to steal or to commit adultery. He tries to get him to turn some rocks into bread after not eating for 40 days. That doesn't seem so bad, right? Man's gotta eat. 
Uh, he tries to get Jesus to prove his power by throwing himself off uh, the temple, off a high place, and having angels catch him in a miraculous display of power. That doesn't seem so bad either, right? I mean, Jesus does do miraculous signs in his ministry to prove his power, so, so what's so bad about that? The last temptation is probably the one that's easiest for us to recognize as, oh yeah, that's bad. You, you don't worship the devil. Don't bow down and worship the devil. But even that one probably doesn't seem as bad to us as something like murder or theft or adultery because of the end result, right? If Jesus just bows down to the devil, then he gets all the kingdoms of the world. He has power and authority over the whole planet. You know, I can imagine some of us thinking, well, if Jesus is in charge of the whole planet, I mean, that's a really good thing, right? That's the, that's the best thing. So who cares if he just gives a little lip service to the devil, right? He ends up in charge of the world. So is it really that bad to do that? But however we might feel, all three of these temptations that the devil tries to get Jesus to do, they really are very bad things. And what we're going to do this morning is we're, we're going to try to identify, okay, why are these temptations really so bad? What does it look like when we succumb to them? Uh, and what does it look like when we succumb to them? Because hopefully that will lead us to not succumb to them or, or give us wisdom and discernment to avoid them. So let's start with that first one. <clears throat> we're told that uh, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a very long time, right? And guess what? He's hungry. No surprises there, right? And so the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now we know that there is nothing inherently sinful about eating, right? Can we all agree on that? There is nothing inherently sinful about eating, right? Jesus is described as eating many times in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus' enemies complained that he ate too much, and they complained that he ate with sinners, right? And on top of all that, the way that Jesus tells us to remember him is by eating something, right? The Lord's Supper, by eating bread. Uh, and even though we don't have any stories about Jesus actually turning stones into bread, we do have a story about him doing something pretty similar, where he multiplies a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he feeds over 10,000 people, right? And he even taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? So there is nothing inherently sinful or wrong about eating, and there's nothing inherently sinful or wrong even about miraculously providing food, which Jesus has done. So why does Jesus not say, well, devil, don't mind if I do. Zap, you know, look what we have here. Soft, delicious Pillsbury grands. There's even melted butter inside. Bet you wish you could do that, devil, huh? Why doesn't Jesus do that? The reason Jesus doesn't do that is because Jesus knows that at this time, his father wants him to fast. That's it. That's the reason. We're not told exactly why the father wants Jesus to fast. But it's clear that Jesus knows that is what the father wants me to do. So even though eating isn't inherently evil, even though miraculous provision of food isn't inherently evil, right now, Jesus isn't supposed to be eating. And if Jesus were to turn those rocks into, into bread, he would be doing something that he knew the Father didn't want him to do. And so that's why Jesus refuses, right? And he says, it is written, 
Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. And what Jesus is saying there, the essence of what he's saying is this. Being obedient to God is more important than even eating. Being obedient to God is more important than even eating. And I think that's a very difficult lesson for us to accept. Because if we find in ourselves that we have a hunger, right? We have a tendency to think, this hunger ought to be satisfied, right? Uh, It could be a hunger for food. It could also be a hunger for money. It could be a hunger for sex. Be a hunger for success or for approval. A hunger for more and more stuff, more consumer goods. A hunger for drugs. Whatever it is, that hunger can feel incredibly strong. It can become like an obsession. We just think, I have to have it. Life isn't worth living if I can't have it, if I can't satisfy this hunger. And if we choose not to satisfy that hunger, it can feel very painful. But what Jesus is saying here is that if we have a hunger that conflicts with what God says, being obedient to God is always the more important thing that should always take priority. That is a hard lesson to hear. It's a hard lesson to accept. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, I want to be really clear because this could be taken the wrong way, okay? God does not tell us that we need to deny ourselves everything that we want. Okay, there is no virtue in being a masochist. Okay, God's not a masochist. Uh, God created this world. He created it with lots of good, unnecessary things to enjoy. And he is not anti-fun or anti-pleasure at all. Okay? So don't take what I'm saying the wrong way. But there is a hard truth that Jesus is teaching here that we need to recognize. And that is this. There are going to be times in our lives when we are hungry for something God has told us not to eat. There's going to be times in our lives when we're hungry for something God has told us not to eat. If it happened to Jesus, it can happen to us. There are going to be times where we have a strong desire for something that God has made clear we're not supposed to do. And even if we can't understand why God wouldn't want us to do it, even if it's really hard not to do it, even if denying ourselves that thing feels like not eating after 40 days of fasting, we're we're still supposed to be obedient to God. We're still supposed to care more about what God says than that hunger. Now that's a hard lesson to hear, Okay, but here's the good news. God doesn't call us to care more about what he says than about what we're hungry for because he's mean. He doesn't do it because there's something inherently good about suffering and denying ourselves what we want. No, Jesus actually tells us why we're supposed to care more. He says, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the word that I want you to see as jumping out from that verse is live. Man does not live on the satisfaction of our hungers alone, right? Man lives on every word that comes from God. Real life, real joy, real peace comes from 
following and pursuing obedience to the will of God. That's where it comes from. Not from pursuing and satisfying any kind of hunger that we might find within ourselves. All right, let's look at the second temptation again. So if you're taking notes, the first temptation to avoid is this, trusting our hunger more than what we know God has said. Trusting our hunger more than what we know God has said. Second temptation. So the devil takes Jesus up to the highest point on the temple, and he says, throw yourself down. Right? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And in order to persuade him to do this, he quotes a passage from one of the Psalms, right? He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, here's something that we need to be reminded of here, okay? The devil knows scripture and he loves to misuse it. This is the devil quoting the word of God, right? He knows it and he can use it. And it's not just the devil, right? Some people can quote the Bible a lot, but they don't necessarily interpret it well. And some of them don't have good intentions either. So we have to be careful not to trust somebody just because they're able to quote a lot of Bible passages at us. What we really need to look for in a person, if we're going to trust them, is what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. You guys know the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? Okay, those are the kinds of qualities that we want to look for in a trustworthy person. If somebody quotes the Bible a lot, but they don't have those qualities, it's a very dangerous person. And they could be a lot like the devil in this passage. Uh, so we have to be careful. And one way that we can protect ourselves is by knowing the Bible ourselves, so that when people misuse it, we have something that we can say, which, of course, is what Jesus does here. So Jesus counters the devil with another scripture. He says, well, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, devil, I'm not going to throw myself off this building to prove that I'm the son of God. That would be testing God, and, and that's not really how a relationship with God is supposed to work. So Jesus' second temptation here actually reminds me of a documentary that I stumbled across this week in my internet wanderings. And uh, it was about what's called a snake handling church in uh, Kentucky. Have any of you guys heard of snake handling churches? Okay, see, I see a few hands coming up. All right, well, fortunately, these kinds of churches are very rare, and where they do exist, they tend to be very small. You know, we're talking under 50 people, probably nowhere near that much. Uh, they're the result of a movement that started about 100 years ago in America. So be assured this doesn't go back to the apostolic age or anything like that. Um, most of them are somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains, these churches. And there's, there's not a lot of them. A few years ago, it was estimated that there's probably about 125 of these churches. 
I still think that's way too many, but there's about 125, and there could be a lot more because these churches tend to be secretive because in a lot of places what they're doing is technically illegal. Uh, but these are churches where people will handle venomous snakes, snakes that have the ability to kill you during their church services. And the people in these churches, they, they say they do this because in the book of Mark, the last chapter of the book of Mark, it says that certain signs are going to accompany those who are preaching the gospel. And one of the signs is something about handling snakes. Okay, and the implication there, the way most people have understood this passage, is not that believers are supposed to go find snakes and pick them up, but that there will be times when people who are preaching the gospel may encounter venomous snakes, and they may end up getting bit by them, and they'll be okay and this will be a miraculous sign to unbelievers. And actually, the Bible records an instance where that very thing happens. If you were here during our Book of Acts series, you might remember the, the sermon on the shipwreck, where Paul uh, was traveling, and he was involved in a shipwreck, and then he ended up on an island. And there was an incident where, where when he was on the island, where he was gathering firewood, and a viper jumped out and bit him. And the locals on the island were like, oh, he's going to die. You know, he must be a very bad man that he would, you know, get bit by a viper. Clearly, this is judgment upon him. But then Paul suffers no ill effects at all. He's fine. And then the people, their opinion of Paul completely reverses. They go too far the other way. They think he's a god now. But whatever the case, the incident gives Paul uh, an opportunity to have the respect of the people on this island. And he's able to share the gospel with them. And people come to Christ. So most people have believed that when Mark, the Gospel of Mark talks about these believers handling venomous snakes, that's the sort of thing it's talking about, not deliberately uh, picking up snakes. And so I watched this documentary, and I felt so sad. Um, because it was following the pastor of this church, who was in his early 20s, and he, he became the pastor of the church when he was 21 because his father, who had been the previous pastor of the church, died at 41 years old of, guess what, the snake bite, right? And then during the documentary, there was a scene where they were filming in the church and the, the, the young pastor did get bit by a snake, like right on his ear, which is one of the worst places that you can get bit because the venom goes straight to your throat, right? And most people who are, dead, who are bitten there are dead in, in no time at all. And uh, he, because of the way he viewed this passage, he thought, I shouldn't go to the hospital. But one member of the church was adamant, I'm taking you to the hospital. So they took him to the hospital, and even then, they were just barely able to save him. It wasn't, wasn't clear for at least a week whether or not he was going to live. And it was only through the, the intervention of, uh, of medicine, modern medicine, that he was, he was kept alive. And uh, I thought it was so sad, because I thought, well, maybe now he's going to wake up to the fact that you really shouldn't be handling snakes. Um, but he was still adamant. He believed that snake handling is supposed to be assigned to unbelievers, and he wasn't going to change that. And I thought, well, yeah, it might be a sign, but it's a sign that you're an idiot, right? <laughs> Not that Jesus is Lord. I believe that if Jesus were to sit down with that young pastor, he would say the same thing to him that he say, said to the devil, which is, do not put your Lord God to the test. That's not what you're supposed to do. Now, why is it wrong to put God to the test? 
You know, some of us might think, well, maybe more people would believe in God if that was the way we related to him. And if he responded to that. Well, imagine what it would be like if we were constantly putting people to the test in any of our human relationships. What would that look like? For example, say you had a friend and you wanted to see if your friend was really loyal, if they'd be a friend no matter what. And so you thought, okay, I'm going to put my friend to the test. And so you started going to his house and eating all his food, you know, taking stuff out of his, his refrigerator. You go into his house in the middle of the night with crash symbols and wake him up in his room. Uh, you t- grab his phone and throw it in a lake, right? Uh, maybe he would, be, he would stay your friend. I don't know. I suspect he'd probably say, I've had enough of you and cut you out of his life. But whatever the case, would that be a healthy relationship? No, right? That would be, <laughs> that would be a very dysfunctional relationship because healthy, re- healthy relationships are not ones where we're constantly putting each other to the test, right? And the same is true in our relationship with God. If we have the kind of relationship where we're always testing him, you know, where we're demanding that he show his power on our terms, that's not a healthy relationship. It's treating God like some kind of genie that we can control. And that's why if we purposely throw ourselves off of a building, he's probably not going to send angels to catch us. And you might think, well, why not? You know, if God really is so powerful and if he really does want people to believe in him, then why doesn't he do more things like that? Why doesn't he catch believers when they jump off of buildings? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't a lot more people believe in him if he did that? And if that's what you're thinking, here's what I would say. Try for a moment to imagine a world where that was the case, where that's the way things operated. Where would it even end, right? People would be like, hey, watch me cut off my hand, and then it's going to come back. That's the power of God right there. Watch me set myself on fire, right? And, and oh, but no, I'm fine. That's the power of God, just like what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at that. The world would be insane, right? It would be crazy. The the whole relationship of cause and effect would be destroyed. We wouldn't even have freedom of the will in the way that we do right now because there'd just be no rules or laws to the way that anything operated. And people wouldn't see these signs and then come to God because of conviction of sin or because they were drawn to something beautiful or true or good, people would come to God, and I put that in quotes, come to God because of the power, right? Because of the power of being like a superhero. A world like that would never foster a healthy relationship with God. Yes, God does do miraculous signs sometimes, absolutely, but he is very wise about how and when he does them because he doesn't want an insane world where everybody relates to him like some kind of genie. So we shouldn't put God to the test. We should trust him. Uh, And we should have faith that he will do what he's promised, right, and act accordingly. But we should never presume to control God. So if you're taking notes, second temptation that we need to avoid is treating God like a genie. Treating God like a genie. 
One more temptation. Number three. So the devil says to Jesus that he will give him power over all the kingdoms of the world if he'll just do one thing, right? If he will bow down and worship him. Worship the devil. Now, like I said earlier, having all the kingdoms of the world under Jesus' control, that's a, that's a really good thing, right? That's a great thing. In fact, we're told that is where history is headed. The consummation of history will be that Jesus is Lord over everything, right? Everything is brought in submission under Jesus Christ. And if it's such a great thing, we might think that it is worth the price of a little lip service to the devil. But Jesus knows that the price of bowing down to the devil, the, ch- the, the price of bowing down to anything other than God, is not worth it. And it's very important for us to pay attention to the wisdom that Jesus is modeling here. Uh, if you're taking notes, the third temptation is compromising our principles in order to gain power. Compromising or giving up our principles to gain power. This is something that Jesus just consistently refuses to do. Uh, He refuses to do it even to the point of going to the cross, of suffering and dying on the cross. Jesus would rather suffer and die on a cross than bow down to anything other than his Father and his Father's will. And this is such an important model for us to follow because we in the church tend to want power. Maybe it's not fair to use the we. I can say for myself, I tend to want power, if I'm honest. Right? We tend to want our churches to grow in size and in influence and in reputation. Right? We long for that kind of power. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a church to expand in its size and influence and reputation. But if we want that more than we want to serve God, we can do a lot of damage. Right? If our top priority is having a big, powerful church, we can end up justifying all kinds of compromise on the way to getting there. You know, We might water down the gospel message, water down what the Bible says, and just say whatever we think everybody wants to hear, because right? that will help make the church big. Uh, we might become obsessed with things like attendance and financial giving instead of whether people are actually growing and getting to know Jesus better and becoming more like him. Um, you know, we might refuse to ever address sin just to keep the peace and keep everybody happy. And if we did those things, you know, who knows? We might end up with a church that on the outside looks really big and really powerful. Maybe, right? But on the inside, we would be sick. And a church like that, that's sick on the inside but looks good on the outside, can just topple like a house of cards. Like it can, it can appear very strong, but the moment the wind blows the right way, it comes crashing down. When we compromise our principles and the pursuit of power, the kind of power that we get is never worth it. It's no good. And it's also important for us as the church to resist this temptation in the political realm, too. Uh, If you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that I talked about this. For a long time, the church in America has sought political power. 
Um, we uh, we want to have influence, influence over the direction of our country, influence over legislation and control over policies. And the desire for that influence, it's not necessarily wrong, right? We're supposed to desire that uh, earth would become more like heaven. That's part of the Lord's prayer. But it is so important that in the pursuit of political power and influence, we don't compromise. We don't give up our principles. Um, if, if, in order to achieve political power, we have to compromise our integrity, it's not worth it, right? If we have to bow down and pledge our loyalty to a political party or to a candidate that destroys our witness, it's not worth it. If we have to support or condone lying or corruption or violence, it's not worth it. And even if we gain power over all the kingdoms of the world, it's still not worth it. The kind of power that we get is not worth it. And that third temptation, the way Jesus responds to it, is a clear reminder to us of that fact. That even the Son of God, who surely would deserve to be in power over all the kingdoms of this world, if he's not willing to just give a little lip service to the devil in order to get it, we shouldn't be willing to give any lip service to anyone uh, who leads us to compromise our principles. All right. Now, to finish this morning, I want to remind us of one thing. Of course, we should try to avoid these temptations, right? Knowing that these temptations exist helps us to avoid them. We should try to avoid them. And uh, Jesus, the way Jesus handles these gives us insight, insight into how to avoid them. But I believe that my job this morning is not just to encourage us to avoid sin, to avoid temptation. My job is also to remind us that all of us have failed to resist these temptations, right? Maybe some of us have done a little better than others, but we have all fallen multiple times to these temptations. There have, there have been times where we have let some hunger within us trump obedience to God. There have been times where we put God to the test, where we've expected him to do something and asked him to do it, and if he hasn't done it, we felt angry at him, Right? There have been times where we have compromised our integrity in the pursuit of power or influence. We've done these things. When Eve was tempted, she failed. And each one of us, to some extent, has been tempted in these areas and has failed. But Jesus was successful, right, where all of us have failed. And the message of the gospel, the central message that we proclaim, is not... Just avoid temptation, avoid temptation. The central message that we proclaim is that even though we don't have power to overcome these temptations, Jesus did. And he, he, he did it. And because he did it, when we trust in him, we can be saved. And does he empower us to overcome temptation? Yeah, yeah, most definitely, right? He shows us the way. But our hope is not in our strength. Our hope is not in our willpower. Right? Our hope is in Jesus and in his power, right? in the one who overcame the devil, even though we could not. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, every day uh, we face temptation to go the wrong way. And sometimes those temptations are very clearly wrong, but sometimes they're more subtle. And uh, sometimes the subtle ones are the hardest ones to resist, the hardest ones to recognize. But God, I thank you for the model that we, we see uh, through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would help us to be sensitive uh, to the times where we, we're being tempted in, in ways similar to the way Jesus was tempted here. And God, we thank you that even though we have failed, Lord, that through Jesus we can have victory. We thank you, Lord, that, that you did what we could not. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us, give us strength and wisdom not to fall. Um, and we pray, Lord, that our church would be a place uh, that focuses on what really matters, Lord, that values the things that you value uh, and that refuses to, to compromise our integrity or, or our principles in the pursuit of expanding your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.